So friends, John chapter 2 is essentially two stories. And many people have seen them as stories of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, inside of those first 18 verses, that prologue, one of the introductions that we had to who Jesus was is that the word of God came full of grace and truth. So we get that information in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, it's as if we watch those two things get played out. In the first story in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. He supplies for a wedding, and we see the glory of God and the kingdom of God in really interesting ways as Jesus says that God, Jesus gives a gift to a wedding, a gift to a circle of friends and neighbors there in the little village of Cana. It's a story of grace, the giving of God. In our next story in John chapter 2, Jesus makes his own whip. He starts throwing tables around. He sends animals and merchants scattering, and he yells at a bunch of people. This is a story of truth. <laughs> Jesus bringing truth to worship and to the temple. Oftentimes, people have described my wife Heather and I with the same two words, grace and truth. I'll let you decide who's who. But the settings of those two stories in John chapter 2 could not be more different. One is a wedding ceremony amongst friends and family in this small village of Cana, not that far from Nazareth, near the Sea of Galilee. The next story that we read today is just before the Passover in Jerusalem, and it happens inside of this massive complex that is Herod's temple. And this is the Herod, who is the Herod of the story of the birth of Jesus Christ and the slaughter of the innocents. This Herod is an evil man, but he was also a builder. There's a lot left in the land of Israel that was built by Herod. So Herod was trying to curry favor with the Jewish people by building this massive complex that held the temple and allowed essentially an entire nation of people to come and worship and perform their sacrifices. And at the Passover especially, a lot of Jews would come to Jerusalem and would come to the temple. And so this story, the second one in John chapter 2, happens in public before a lot of people in a crowded outdoor court with as many onlookers as we can imagine. The fundamental problem in our story in the second part of John chapter 2 is that a place that has been designed for worship has been turned essentially into an open-air mall. So here are some of the things that help us understand what Jesus does in this passage, how it unfolds, and what he says. The first thing that we're going to see is the corruption of worship. It's so bad and it's so frustrating that Jesus actually gets aggressive. This is as aggressive as Jesus gets inside of the Gospels. And if you've been raised in Sunday school or read your New Testament, you know at least the broad outline of this story is Jesus clears the temple of all of this corruption of worship. But it's not just a story of the corruption of worship, it's a story of the restoration of worship as well. Jesus expresses this. He wants the temple to be a place of prayer and of worship for all nations, 
to be essentially what it was designed for be, to be for all of the people of God, everyone who has become a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But more than that, the restoration of worship is not just, let's make sure we clear out this part of the temple court so people can come and worship. What Jesus does next is he begins to talk about the temple that is to come, that he himself has come as the temple of God, the place of the presence of God here on earth. So that temple in Jesus Christ becomes radically different than Herod's temple and everything that happens in it. So the corruption of worship, the restoration of worship, and there's even a moment in this story of the, we're going to call it the clarity of authority. This conflict between who Jesus is and how he talks about himself and how he talks about the kingdom of God, the conflict between that and the Jewish religious leaders begins inside of this passage of Scripture. Who are you to do all of these kinds of things? Can you somehow prove to us that you have the authority to walk into the temple and to, make, to, to perform this cleansing, to quote Scripture, to teach? And there's a clarity of authority about Jesus Christ and who he is. We're going to discover that Jesus actually isn't all that interested in trying to prove himself to people who have already decided against him. But Jesus will constantly show signs to those who are open to who he is. Those who are ready to listen to him, those who are ready to pay attention to him, to stop for just a moment and listen to what Jesus has to say. He is constantly revealing himself to them. And we're going to read this kind of language again throughout chapter 2, especially as these stories come to an end and we transition into this famous story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Who believes? How does belief happen? How does trust in Jesus Christ come about that is still critical to our passage of Scripture today? So let's begin reading in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the, the, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So John tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. That event, the Passover, marks three points in John's gospel. There are several feasts and annual trips that an observant Jew would make or would try to make to the temple in Jerusalem, but this one is at the center of their religious calendar, the reminder of the exodus from Egypt and everything that God did to make all of that work. So one of the things that this means is that a lot of people descended upon the city in the temple to offer sacrifices, to be a part of the event. And like so many others, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Jesus takes his disciples with him to participate in the Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus' last trip to the city of Jerusalem is also in observance of the Passover, but it is the weekend that Jesus is 
crucified. It's the weekend that he goes to the cross. So the text says that when Jesus gets there, what he finds is a bunch of merchants and a bunch of people who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and doves. So I want to make sure we get a feel for Herod's temple and for this complex and what it is like Herod's temple, as a matter of fact, was so large, it's often just called a complex because of its size, its scope, and everything that it was designed to accommodate. So the temple itself, we have, uh, you, you see a little bit of the graphic there, the temple itself in the middle of this larger courtyard complex is built on the foundation of what originally was where Solomon's temple was. And then after that was destroyed, then in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the smaller temple is rebuilt. And by the time Herod comes around, he decides to build this massive complex. So in the middle of that large courtyard, we have the temple itself. And some of the smallest courts there in the center are the courts for the priests themselves who offer the sacrifices. The smaller courts there in the center are also for the male Jews who have purified themselves and bring sacrifices in. They are allowed to come even closer into the middle of the temple court. There's a larger court on the outside of the temple itself that was for female Jews. That's as far as they could go. That's as close as they could get to worship to the middle of the temple. And then that larger outdoor complex, the large open space on either side of the temple itself, that was the courtyard for Gentile worshipers. So if you weren't a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you were a follower of their God and you came to worship him, that's where you got to worship. That's where you could go. That's as close as you could get inside of the temple. And outside of that, even, you can see a few other things. There are colonnades. There's actually an outpost for Roman and Jewish security because that outer courtyard was often the scene of some uprisings or religious uh, uprisings. And so the soldiers had easy access. We watched some of that happen actually in Acts chapter 21 and 22. So this is a dramatic place. This is a place that is full of activity, and it's not just the sacrifice and the worship, but it's the culture, and it's the people, and it's everything that Jesus sees when he walks into the temple. Now, because of the mandatory sacrifices that are to be offered at the Passover, many of these pilgrims who had come to worship would buy their animals, or if they couldn't afford a larger animal, they would buy one of the birds when they got there. So they would bring the coinage that they had to buy the animals there. And so a couple of things had to happen. First of all, you needed a place where you could purchase the animals. And so these merchants and these traders had begun to set themselves up inside of the Gentile courtyard, the courtyard that was intended for worship. But then also they needed to exchange that coinage. So those other coins that were Roman coins or were from other pagan nations, they would have the images of Roman emperors or the images of other gods on it, and that was unkosher, that was unholy. So you had to take that coinage and you had to exchange it for the official coinage that could then be brought into the temple to purchase the animals and on and on it goes. So there are two layers of opportunity for exploitation. 
So this exchange rate is in favor of those exchanging money. So it gets more expensive when you exchange for the appropriate money. And then those who are inside actually selling the animals, they know you only have one place to go. And so those prices are higher than they need to be as well. So there's a lot of not just activity, but there's a lot of exploitation going on inside of the temple as well. And all of it is being done in the courtyard of the Gentiles. So, if you were a Gentile who had come a long way to worship, the only place you were allowed to do so was this crush, this cacophony of animals and people and open-air haggling. Your worship has been squeezed out. Your worship has been demeaned your opportunity to worship has actually been suppressed. So there's a lot for Jesus to be angry about. And the first is, I think, as clear as it can possibly be to us, I think, they had filled the house of worship with worldly things and with worldly concerns. And it's more than just the exchange of money significantly in the favor of those who were doing it. It was actually about there were so many other things going on inside of the temple, it had crowded out worship itself. You could only be a certain kind of person to get through all of that, to get into the temple itself, to even draw near and perform that sacrifice. You had to be a certain kind of person to get that close. Otherwise, your worship has been crowded out by worldly things. Nearly impossible for Gentiles to come and worship in the temple at this moment. So these people whom God has drawn to himself from the nations, and we're going to read how the Old Testament tells us this is going to happen. It's not just the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but from the nations, God himself will bring people in to worship him on his holy mountain, in his temple. And so it has happened in this place is filled with people from all over the place to worship. These people whom Jesus is going to die for not that long from now are being treated with corruption and with contempt. I think it's important for us to make sure we ask the question of ourselves. And even as a larger church culture inside of the American church, what has the church brought into its walls that is crowding out worship? Friends, when we come here, we devote ourselves to worship in the Word of God. That's how we structure our service. We give time to praise and worship, and then we worship God. We continually worship God as we open His Word and hear what He has to say. So we actually make space for this. But what happens inside of churches? What worldly things do we sometimes bring in that crowds out why this place exists? That crowds out worship. How many churches, and if you've listened to me for a while now, you might be getting the sense that Phil's getting old and crotchety, and he is just a little bit. I want the word curmudgeon on my uh, tombstone. 
How many churches right now have softened or ignored the gospel for political reasons? How many sermons now are political and not about Jesus? How many of them? The answer is way too many. This is about Jesus. This is about him as king of kings and lord of lords in this place. How many worldly things creep into the life of the church, the weekly life, the daily life of the church that crowd out why we exist, why we gather together, crowd out worship? How many churches have brought the world into worship, making their worship indistinguishable from the world? Just to keep our eyes focused, you see, this kind of thing, whatever it is, whatever does that really aggravates Jesus. This is where he makes a whip and starts scattering people so that this physical place can be a place of worship for all of God's people. And worship was even being used, we've seen, to exploit people. The, the exchange rates, the purchase rates, all of it is done on the back of worship. We're going to show up because this is when everybody is coming to make their sacrifices to worship. So we're going to be there, we're going to meet them, and this is how it's going to happen. The kingdom of God, however, friends, is a very different thing. Worship is the first thing. It is a necessary thing for the people of God. Worship is essential business it is essential business and then we cannot ignore this we cannot ignore this because we cannot allow worship to be a reason to divide people we can't ignore the fact that this is an ethnic division they're only Gentiles they can't get into the temple anyway so let's just go ahead and set up our wares there. They're just Gentiles. We can't use worship to divide people. I'm remembered of what the Apostle James tells us in James chapter 2, those first few verses. It is what we call the sin of partiality. He said, if someone comes into your gathering and they're well-dressed and they look like they're rich, you stick them in the front row. You want them to have the best seat because you want them to come back. But someone comes into your gathering and it's not the kind of person you want in your gathering. They're not dressed the way you want them to be dressed. They don't look the way you want them to look. So you kind of you shove them off into the back corner. Whereas in the American church, it's always the back rows that fill up first. And the front rows are always, my personal space has not been violated this morning. But he says, this is what you do. You actually divide people in your worship services. And James says, it's a sin. It's the sin of partiality. So we can't allow these other kinds of things to crowd out worship, to exploit people because they have gathered for worship, to divide people because they may not be exactly who we think they're supposed to be because they have come to worship Jesus with us. Sometimes, friends, our eyes need to change. The way that we see people, the way that we see people, even as they walk in these doors, sometimes our eyes just need to change. And Jesus, as he's driving them out, this fury of activity, 
And as large as this courtyard is, we can sort of imagine as John explains it, he actually says he drove all of them out. How long did this take? How much energy? How much effort? How many times did he hit somebody with that whip? This is a lot of work. And he says, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. This is one of the stories that is in all four Gospels. It's this important. Mark chapter 11, verse 17, this is how Mark records what Jesus is saying as he is doing this. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What this place is for is a place of worship, a place of prayer for all of the nations. It was designed to be a place of worship for everyone who comes to God. Then listen to this passage of Scripture. This is actually where this comes from in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, this is part of worship in a holy day, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Everyone who loves the Lord and is gathered together to honor him, to worship him, to make their sacrifices to him, I'm going to bring them, God says, to my holy mountain. And my house will be this house of prayer, a house of worship. So the act of Jesus cleansing the temple becomes this act of restoring worship. This place is set aside for God himself, the people of God, and for the worship of God. And it says, and his disciples remember. John says this kind of thing a few times through his gospel. And it's this kind of signal that either along the way, maybe it was a few days later, John will even say a couple of times, after the crucifixion, resurrection, the disciples brought this back to mind and, and it reminded them of this moment in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, verse 9, where the text says, zeal for the Lord, uh, zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed me. So the disciples connect that psalm to this moment because they see the zeal that God has for his house, that Jesus has for the temple itself. But it isn't just this one passage of Scripture. As we think about how precious this time is, as we discover how important our time of gathering together to worship Jesus Christ is to Jesus. I want to make sure we hear some other things that God has to say about this gathering, what it means to worship, how important it is to him. So I want to read from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, the text says, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist comes, 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like an angry man with a whip. He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days as in the days of old and in former years. Suddenly the Lord of hosts will come. He will come to the gathering of his people and he will be a refining fire. And he will take all of this and he will burn it. He will burn away the dross and all of the impurities because what God once left in the work of Christ in our lives is that silver will become pure. These characters will become more like Christ and our offering of worship more pure. This is what Christ is after and Jeremiah, the prophet, also talks about the restoration of worship, and he also talks about the importance of how we come to worship, what God sees when we engage in worship. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Your words can say whatever you want them to. God sees, God knows. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So it's not just a den of robbers in terms of those who are exploiting the exchange rate or exploiting you for how much this pigeon actually costs you. It's a den of those who have stolen worship from God and given it to other things stolen worship from God and given it to other ways of life, given it even to other gods. So through the week, you sacrifice to all of these other false gods. And just to make sure you're covered, you show up at temple on the weekend and you say, I'm okay. I see it, says God. You've turned my house into a den of robbers. So what is happening was corrupting worship. He was blocking God's people from worshiping at all. So Jesus goes through all of this effort to restore the right function of the temple. The reason this is here is so the people of God can worship their God. And then he goes one more step. And if this weren't trouble enough, this is what Jesus does. He goes one more step and just keeps on getting himself in trouble. 
But in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, after all of this flurry of activity, this conversation takes place. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, wait a second, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, and the word that Jesus had spoken. What sign do you, you nothing rabbi from nothing territory north of Galilee, you're in Jerusalem now with the big boys. Who do you think you are? What sign are you going to show us that says that you have the right to do this? And John keeps using this language of sign. And that word in the Greek is interesting. It's a marker that distinguishes me from everybody else. No one else is like this because I can produce this sign. What makes you unique? So that's their challenge to Jesus. But John uses the same word throughout his gospel to say Jesus keeps giving us signs. He keeps doing these things that show us that he is utterly and absolutely unique. And so what Jesus does between his teachings and his miracles, they're signs. They're not just divine magic tricks that make people feel good. Every one of them is a pointer to his uniqueness. Every one of them is a pointer on the way to the kingdom of God and salvation and transformation through Jesus Christ. But after all of this activity, these Jewish leaders come to him with their form of deflection. He's gotten away with all of this. They don't think he's anybody, so they push him one more time and ask for proof. What sign are you going to give us to show us that you had the right to do this? And Jesus' conversations are magnificent. They ask him one question. Maybe they're expecting one thing. Maybe they think it doesn't matter what he does. We're just going to prove that he isn't who he thinks he is. Jesus takes a conversation that's going this way, and he abruptly moves it into this direction over here. He says, here's the sign I'm going to give you. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it back up again. So they're asking for validation of who he is. And what Jesus does is he points them to something that's yet to happen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This temple you will destroy, but I will raise it up again on the third day. Again, this is something that Jesus likes to do to those who are publicly in opposition to him. A similar conversation happens in Matthew chapter 12, and he says, look, this is the sign that's going to be given to people like you, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days later, resurrection is going to occur. To the group of people who are out to destroy him, he points them to the greatest and most obvious of all signs, the divine marker that says he is the Messiah, God in flesh. He points them to the resurrection itself. And so it still is the case. 
The resurrection still stands as that one clear, unassailable sign that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he was God in flesh, that he is the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated there, and he is our soon and coming king. Jesus says, that's the sign I'm going to give you. And the world still has the same reactions to the resurrection. For those who have already dismissed Jesus, it is a reason to continue to mock him or to be skeptical. But then it is also this reason to believe in him and be saved. And so they misunderstand and they mock. It's taken 46 years. That was the length of time it took Herod and his thousands upon thousands of builders to build that temple complex. It took 46 years to do this, and you're telling me you're gonna we're going to destroy it, and it's going to be raised back up again in three days. In fact, this statement comes back and is used against Jesus in his pre-crucifixion trial. Bring all these false witnesses. They're doing everything they can can to concoct this moment that will tip the scales and get Jesus crucified. They can't do it. The Romans have to do it, so they push, 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 push until they get there. So they bring these false witnesses in, and part of what they say is, we heard him say he's going to destroy this temple. Isn't that bad enough? And he said he was going to raise again in three days. Take note about something that happens with Jesus Christ and those who oppose him, and those who are against him, take note of something interesting. Jesus speaks only truth. Jesus performs signs and wonders. Jesus heals people and frees people. Jesus raises others from the dead. And all of that is a reason for his enemies to crucify him. The depths of sin inside of the human heart is a powerful thing. If we are not careful and we allow sin to, to sink its roots inside of us, what should be a clear reason to accept Jesus Christ, to turn our lives over to him, those same things become reasons to despise him, to ignore him. For them, they become reasons to crucify him. John says, but in the end, what Jesus was doing is he was speaking about the temple of his body. So there was corrupted worship. Jesus is restoring worship inside of the temple. And we see that Jesus not only restores, but he restored and recentered worship. Not only should the physical temple be used for its intended purpose, True worshipers will worship Jesus himself. This is the new temple. This is something we've begun to see as through the eyes of others, through the eyes of those disciples in chapter 1 who were, who were coming to realize Jesus and see who he was, how they told their friends, come and see, we've, we've found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. We have found the Messiah himself. And Jesus even tells Nathaniel after their conversation, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, saying that this is the new Bethel. This, Jesus says, is the new house of God here on earth. This is now God in flesh. 
I was reminded of the opening passages in the book of Hebrews, speaking of who Jesus is and how we see him for what he is as he recenters worship upon himself. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is a part of his beautiful introduction to that epistle. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John, the gospel writer, says, and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples recalled all of this. And the pieces of the puzzle were all being put together. And it says they believed in him. I mean, that's incredible. As the disciples who already believe in Jesus, when they see the resurrection and all the pieces start coming together, their belief deepens and strengthens. I love that. When therefore he was raised from the dead in John chapter 2, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This turns out to be another moment that deepens the belief of the disciples in Jesus Christ. They trust him more. They know him more, so their belief in him is deepened and strengthened. Their belief in what Scripture it says about Jesus is also deepened and strengthened. Friends, can I encourage you in a certain way? There simply are seasons in life, and sometimes these seasons are dramatic and powerful and difficult. Sometimes these seasons in life are just dry and long and hard, and we begin to lose our sense of trust in Jesus. When these kinds of things happen, I need to encourage you to spend more time with Jesus and not less. We need to hear this. Because the natural inclination is in seasons of difficulty and loss or seasons of struggle and darkness, whatever it is, we are tempted to just sort of step back from all of this. We're tempted to not show up as often. We're tempted to not engage in our relationship with Jesus Christ as often. Press into Jesus more and more. Get to know him more. And I'll tell you what, there is something about Walking with Jesus day after day after day, that the more you do that, the more you will see the past as something that Jesus was involved in. You may not see it today, but as you spend time with Jesus, you might see it next year. Does that make sense? Keep pressing into Jesus. The disciples who already believed in him, they were there at the resurrection. They saw the resurrected Savior. And it says, and it's as if they believed even more about the scriptures. Stay close to Jesus. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, listening to and learning about Jesus grows our belief and grows our trust. To others, especially the enemies of Christ inside of the gospel, the very same things they see, the very same words that they hear, actually causes a growth in their rejection of who Jesus is. 
I want to finish this morning with a couple of thoughts about this passage of Scripture for you and me. So as every preacher says, as I begin to close, don't get excited. Settle in. We've got some time to go. But a couple of thoughts about what's happening in this passage and what I think you and I need to hear from this. We cannot take worship lightly. We can't. And I don't just mean those, those times of worship that you have when you listen to the songs that you like or your times of worship in your personal devotionals or with a couple of close friends. Those are beautiful and magnificent times of devotion and worship and time with Jesus Christ. But I mean actually gathering together on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, so that we can sit next to each other, hear each other sing, pray for each other, fellowship with each other, listen to the word of God opened, hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to his church, and leave these doors and walk back into the world as people who are full of the Spirit of God and ready to go. We cannot take worship lightly. See, the work of those merchants, it stopped worship for those who were there to do exactly that. Corporate worship, time with others. They had marched their family for miles to come and worship together, and they couldn't do it. Time with other believers, time to offer sacrifices. So in a public display of zeal and aggression, Jesus clears the temple of everything that stands between you and worship. Think about this for a second with me. Almost every one of you in this room has been through this season of life or you have friends or family members or you know of others who are in exactly this season of life. I don't have to come to church. I can worship Jesus where I am just fine. Thank you very much. This is exactly the moment. If that were true, think about this for a moment. If that were true, this is the moment when Jesus would tell us that's the way that you worship. He would walk into a temple where Old Testament sacrifices are still taking place. Actual blood is flowing from the altar. He would walk into that temple and it's cluttered and crowded. And he goes, you know what? This doesn't matter anyway because the new temple is here. Jesus doesn't do that. This is the moment he could have and he doesn't. He goes to great effort to say this still matters. We can't take worship lightly. And friends, listen, our culture more and more interferes with showing up on Sunday morning and worshiping Jesus Christ together. I know, I know it gets harder and harder, especially for families, to make decisions that we're going to show up and we're going to worship God together. Our culture is interfering with worship, the worship of the church. The question is, will I let it happen? One of the most subtle but radical moves that was made at the beginning of the COVID pandemic was the labeling of only some things as essential. So what happens when you label a handful of things as essential? You, by default, label everything else as non-essential. Guess where the church was? Non-essential. What do you think Jesus thinks? 
How many churches are still not gathering together to worship? And this is, this is again where I come out. <laughs> churches were not labeled as essential. But listen, we should not be surprised when sinners think that money or power or whatever else is more important than worship. But what happens when they convince thousands of believers that worship is no longer necessary? The uh, research group Barna, they do a lot of research and much of it is focused on the church and belief and worship attendance patterns and so on and so forth. Very quickly inside of early in 2020, they started tracking these kinds of patterns and by May, June, and July of 2020, they had discovered that between 20 and 25% of those who had been regular attenders of church before the COVID pandemic had not only not gone back to church, but had not even watched another church service. Subtly, and yet powerfully, it happens. We've discovered this just isn't all that essential. Jesus' response to that is to grab every cord that he can get his hands on, braid it into a whip, and start beating people. We're going to clear this area of everything because this is important. That's why this place exists. Jesus did end up telling us that he is the true temple, but he also cleared the physical temple of distractions. He restored corporate worship. So we can't take worship lightly, but then we also need to be crystal clear that it is Jesus that we worship. There is no point in gathering as a church if Jesus is not at the center of that church. There just isn't. The world is full of contenders for my worship. To worship something or someone is to treat it as, as of ultimate value or worth. It is the person or it is the thing that receives the best of me. I lean my hopes and desires and wishes upon that thing or that, pe that person or that ideology. My hopes for the future, my desires for provision, my desires for everything to be put right. I'm going to lean on all of this. That's, that's an act of worship. So we need to be crystal clear that it is Jesus that we worship. Jesus is the only one in the end who is worthy of this time, effort, money, talents, our future, our very selves. Our true temple is here, the very presence of God among us, the Son of God and Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven that is worthy of our praise. Nothing else, nothing else can carry the weight of your soul. Nothing else can. There are a lot of people and ideologies out there who will tell you, we can carry the weight of your soul. They're all wrong. Jesus is the only one. I want to finish with this greeting that Paul gives the Galatians. Again, it just reminded me of a lot of what the Apostle Paul says, to remind us of who Jesus is and why he must be the only one that we worship. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins so that you and I could be delivered from the present evil age. And he is the one to whom we give glory and honor forever and ever. So be it. So be it. Let's pray. Oh,